Amen. You may be seated. Great worship, church. My name is David Rudy, and if I haven't met you yet, I'm the pastor here. It's so great to have you with us, and summer is out over. I think everybody who hasn't been back to school yet, sounds like you're going back to school like tomorrow. So here we are, and, and the fall is officially like beginning, but we are finishing up our series in, on prayer. We're entitled entitling this series, True Prayer. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and take it. And please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And today we're going to be in verse 13. We're at the tail end of this series. We have one more week in it. And this entire series is about seeking God's presence, not just his provision. We've been seeing that it's really easy to just get weird with prayer sometimes. We don't really know what to do, and we hear what other people say in prayer, and we can really make it about a lot about us in our prayer lives. We can kind of fall into that, into that, into that rut almost to, to make it about ourselves to where we, instead of just praying to God for him to be there and have, having this relationship with God, we're just asking for stuff. Or we're going to him and running to him when we're desperate and we have nowhere else to turn, but we haven't talked with him in a long time. So we don't want to be weird with prayer, which is why Jesus gave us this blueprint. Right here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, pray like this. And we've been going through all the different steps that Jesus gives us with this prayer. And wow, what a contrast it is with, with a lot of times the prayers that we pray when it's just about us. So, true prayer, it changes you and it moves God. And this week, as we finish up the Lord's Prayer, we're going to break down this final phrase, this last piece of the Lord's Prayer in verse 13. So look at verse 13 with me. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, so right off the bat here, I have a question for you. I'm putting you on the spot. How many of you have the last phrase in your copy of the scripture? And how many, how many of you have that, first of all? Does your Bible say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. How many people? Anybody? Got a few hands? Yes? Okay, I see a few. Most people don't have that, right? How many of you don't have that phrase in your Bible? Yeah, a lot of us. That's the traditional ending of the Lord's Prayer. And... It's not in my translation of the scripture. So before we even get into the body of this sermon today, I want to take a brief pause and give you a preface. How many of you like to read prefaces before you open up a book? Anybody out there? I see a few hands. Yeah, we're doing a lot of hand raising today. Uh, half of us probably like the preface. Some of us don't like the preface. If you are a reader and you're reading this book because you want to learn more a little bit about the background, maybe a little thought from the author before you dive in and, and you are willing and ready to read this book and soak up everything, you're probably going to read the preface. If you've had this reading assignment handed to you at school and you have to just read two chapters before the next day, you're probably going to like skip that seven-page preface and you're like, yes, I'm just going to move on and write through this assignment. But okay, preface. Why do some translations say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, and then all these modern translations not have that? Right? We need to actually explain this, and the reason being, most of the newly found, in the last like 100 years, the newly found manuscripts 
omit this phrase. Now, I know I'm dropping a bombshell on some people because we're talking about like pulling out words out of Scripture, and some people are like, how dare you talk about my Bible and there's something that's not in my Bible? Like, what are you talking about, son? Like, I know there's, I know there's that tendency to where we're like, what's your problem? Who do you think, heck to think you are? Like, why does like, my Bible, the, my Bible says it and it's in there. All right, okay. Well, we're going to calm down and we're just going to talk about this logically because there is a really good explanation and actually it's a good teaching moment. My job is your pastor is to be faithful to the text. Right? I have to give you the word of God and not add anything to that. I need to clearly explain the word of God and apply it to your life. So when we come to a phrase like this, a lot of times, and this could be, this isn't the only phrase like this in the Bible, that is maybe it was in the King James Version, it was in my grandpa's version, but I don't have it in my Bible. What's going on? Reliability of scripture question comes up, right? To understand this, you really have to understand how we have our copy of the Bible. And I'm going to go through this really fast. This is the preface time, and then we can circle back to it. And if you want to talk more about it, I'd love to talk more about it. But in the last 150 years, we have discovered thousands of more manuscripts of the New Testament. So if you go back to when the original translations in the English were made, they had about half the number of manuscripts that we have now. This is actually a really good thing because some of the manuscripts we've discovered are actually earlier copies than the ones they used when they translated the King James like 400 years ago, right? So because we have these, these newly found earlier manuscripts, we put more weight on those because they're closer to the original. And this is a very basic thing, but manuscripts, copied manuscripts, are not inspired by God. They are simply copies that humans make, and they are with error because humans make mistakes, right? So every manuscript besides the original manuscript, the original inspired copy of Scripture, that is without error. It is inerrant. I firmly believe that. It was, it was given by the Holy Spirit to that individual who wrote it down. They were moved by the Holy Spirit without error. But every single copy from there on has a couple these and thous and commas and Little tiny manuscript tribal, or excuse me, tribal, more like scribal errors in it. And this particular passage is probably one of the top five passages in all of the New Testament that actually we have what, what many people will, believe, will call, and I would believe, is a, a scribal note that got into the text. So what happened was, as they were copying this this section of scripture, Matthew 6. One of the scribes who was making that copy of that translation of that scripture wrote a, wrote a little note on the, on the side, just like we make notes in our Bible. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then 100 years later, when the next guy comes along and he's making a copy from that translation of scripture, he sees that little note on the side and he just adds that into the text. And that's how we have it. So we have close to 6,000 manuscripts in the New Testament now. Just even like... 70 years ago, we had like 5,000 manuscripts in the New Testament. So when we have all these manuscripts and you line them all up and you say, oh, wow, I have 4,800 manuscripts that omit this phrase. And then there's these, these, more, these newer translations, these newer manuscripts that omit that or that, that have that phrase. You can clearly pinpoint where those errors have been made. 
So I'm being open, I'm being real with you, I'm being honest about you. The more you look at the textual evidence and the more you look at the number of manuscripts we have, the more sure we can be that our copy of Scripture is accurate. I have a New Testament, a Greek New Testament, that has every single textual variant right there. And the, all, if you add up all the textual variants in the New Testament, it amounts to basically one page of your Bible. And like I said, this was... This is one of the main top five key phrases in all of the New Testament that traditionally it's been in there, and traditionally people will have it as part of the Lord's Prayer, but it actually wasn't what Jesus said. And that's why I spent all that time. So preface over. Preface over. Now we're going to talk about why I spent so much time with this. I want you to understand we have a sure, reliable copy of Scripture. It's, it's amazing what we have. Like, it's amazing that a document this old has thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts, and that we can line them all up, and we can see perfectly where every little, little mistake was made, and compare and contrast and see, well, this is clearly what the original should have been. We have that gift with the Bible, because this is a supernatural book that was written by over 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years, and it all makes sense, and it all ties together. So the closer you look at the authority of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture, the more sure you are that it is the Word of God. But Jesus ended with, and lead us not into temptation. I'm not saying that very well today. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's how Jesus ended it, which is a little bit more abrupt, is it not? A little bit more like just cut it off, and we're going to still think about this, and we're moving on but it's still kind of lingering there. It doesn't have this nice, pretty bow tied on at the end of it to wrap up the prayer. You see what I'm saying? Why did Jesus end his prayer that way? Well, let's consider why. This is a daily prayer, and it's a prayer that is ongoing. Fits along the lines of what Jesus said later on, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit said to pray without ceasing. Prayer is a continual conversation with God, and it's ongoing. And that's the feeling we get with the way Jesus ended this. Arm yourselves, because you're going to venture out there, and you're going to need some help. You're going to need some help. And lead us on the temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is why Jesus ended the prayer that way. It's a prayer for our future needs. A prayer for our future needs. Now, prayer should consume. You've been seeing this throughout this whole, this whole series of true prayer. Prayer should consume the past, the present, and the future in our lives. When we started this prayer off, hallowed be your name, we're thinking about the holiness of God. And we're thinking about what he's done for us in the past. We use that as motivation. That's, that's fuel for the fire, right? Like God is holy. God is unique. God is just. He's merciful. Hallowed be your name. You sent Jesus to die for me. That's what you did in the past. It's also a prayer about the present. It's a prayer about right now. Give, give me this day daily bread, okay? It's, it's I need this need now, Lord. Do something for me right now. I need help right now. Embrace that rhythm of daily dependence. We looked at that. And then it's clearly a prayer about the future. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
So you realize, hopefully you realize this by now, you can't handle everything that's coming your way on your own. I can't do it. You can't do it. None of us can handle the attacks, the temptations, the trials, the tribulations, the heartbreak, the failures, the disappointments from other people. None of us can handle all that on our own, which is why Jesus has this prayer as an ongoing, as he ends it, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. This last week, Julie's parents uh, visited us, and they were in town, and, and earlier in the week, uh, my father-in-law went to get donuts for everybody, got donuts for the family. And it was so, so great because the, the boys had been asking for donuts for a while. And he came back with donuts. And Grandpa, not used to buying donuts for little kids, bought out of the dozen donuts, he only bought two chocolate donuts. And one of those chocolate donuts was for his wife, was for Grandma, which left one chocolate donut for two little boys. And both little boys want the chocolate donuts. And of course, my oldest son, Beckham, who's six, kind of had a meltdown about that because I said we need to split it. And, uh, and he had a really hard time understanding how Grandpa could have only bought one chocolate donut for them. <laughs> and it kind of ruined his morning. So of course, we go in, and we have a conversation. Beckham, you know, sometimes life is hard. Don't always get the chocolate donut that you want. And, and this is the way it's going to continue like this the rest of your life. It doesn't always shake out your way, and we have to make the best of a sad situation, and it's, and it's okay. And I know that all of us in here are dealing with way more than just, you know, settling for the glazed donut rather than the chocolate donut. We have, we have serious issues, though, really, right? I mean, serious issues going on in our life. I mean, maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's a relationship that you want to have and you desire to have, and it's a barren wasteland. Maybe it's a relationship that you have now, and wow, my spouse is way, this is way harder to deal with than I was ever expecting it to be. Maybe it is a child who's, who's, who's living their life now, and, and they're making some decisions that are hard for you to grasp, and you're, and you're, you're struggling with those, you're wrestling with those. Maybe, maybe it's financial stress. That is never fun. But you are in a confusing dilemma, or maybe you have mental health struggles. There's, I could go on and on about the things that we can't handle in our life. In this fallen world, it's filled with the effects of sin. And the temptations are going to come along with those. So we can't just live in the past with our prayers. We can't even just live in the present with our prayers. Because if we're just praying, oh God, I'm sorry for that. Oh God, I need this right now. Give it to me right now. Or, God, I'm sorry, I blew it again. Like, if that's the whole prayer life, that's, you're missing something in true prayer. Because true prayer looks ahead. It's not just reactive, it's proactive. It's like, I know people are people. I know I'm going to have a hard time dealing with this. And God, I'm coming to you right now. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. If all you're doing in your prayer life is reacting, you're basically living your life like a bad defense in football. Okay, let me explain. Uh, football season's coming up. I know some of you are just ready for college football to start next week. Some of us are ready for the NFL in a few weeks. But defenses that are just reactionary are the worst kind of defenses. The absolute worst kind of defense, in my opinion, is the prevent defense. 
And I know some people are not into football, so let me just briefly explain. A prevent defense is like you're up at the end of the game. You're just trying not to let the other team score, so you're trying to prevent them from scoring. You don't really care if they get yards. So what do you do? You back off, and you just let them kind of catch the ball. Then you run up and tackle them. You just keep them out of the end zone is all you have to do. But prevent defenses usually prevent you from winning. That's what I think. Because the other team will, without fail, just march it up, and then they score. It's, not, it's a reactionary defense. It's not a defense that goes on attack. Good defenses, they plan, they strategize, they study their opponent, they make a game plan, and they attack, right? In your prayer life, you can't be reactionary. You can't play this prevent style of, oh, this happened, I guess I'll react now. Like, no, no, it's coming. Temptation is on its way. It's knocking on the door. There's going to be hard things in life. Be ready for them. Be prepared for those. And be proactive, aggressively scheming. You know, I need Jesus. Jesus, help me with this. And this is why I think Jesus closes with this element of prayer, a prayer for future strength. And that's that same exact concept. So today, we're going to see three points out of this verse about deliverance. Three points about preparing and praying for future strength, being proactive rather than reactive. Three ways to be the opposite of a prevent defense. Number one is to walk with your father, not in front of him. Walk with your father, not in front of him. And the key word here that I want you to get out of this, out of this first point is the word lead. And lead us not into temptation. Now there's a lot to unpack in this verse. So let's talk about being led by God first. When you walk with God, you can hear him better. Very simple truth. But when you walk with God, you're able to hear him more easily. You know where to go. And even if you're walking through a rough, scary stretch of your life or on the path in your, in, in your relationship with God, you're going through a hard time. It's a scary stretch. If you're walking with God, you're safe and you're secure. And you can get through that. For those of us who have kids right now, or some of us who don't have kids yet, and, and this, is a, this is a fair warning for you, for some of us who forgot what this is like, but when you have kids and you're walking on the street, maybe to a restaurant, maybe you're going to an ice cream shop, your kids are going to want to run ahead of you, right? And what happens when your kids are running ahead of you and they're not like with you holding your hand? It's like way more strenuous, way more stressful. It's like, stop, nope, go this way. You're like yelling. They're like way ahead. It's just this really tense, not fun kind of thing. It's way better to have your kids walking alongside you. Like, all right, we're going to go here, and we're going to go over here. Walking with your father, not in front of your father, is so important to let him lead. Scripture describes our relationship with God as a walk, like all over scripture. This is just a repeated pattern again and again and again and again and again. We're not in a sprint. We're in a walk with our Father. Isaiah 30 talks about this. You see this all the way back in the New Testament. But in Isaiah chapter 30, it says there, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. You see this idea of walking with your father? 
not in front of your father. Genesis talks about this as well, all the way back with Moses, or excuse me, Noah. Noah had this big task to build an ark. He had to get the specific instructions and the measurements and all that stuff. And Genesis 6, 9 says that Noah walked with God. I could just list a number of names throughout the Old Testament of people in the New Testament, of people who walked with God. 2 Corinthians 6 talks about the same thing all the way into the New Testament. For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's quoting Leviticus there. But it goes for us too in the, in the church age. This is for the New Testament church. Walking with God. And here's another thing that is tricky to talk about, and, and you don't hear it too often, but it can be really easy to get too far ahead of God and to jump out ahead of God with our own, with our own righteous zeal. I mean, you have to be very careful with this one because we should be positive, we should be moving forward, we should be enthusiastic and, and saying, I want to do what you want to do, God, and I want to go out there and change the world. Yes, that's, that's the heart of Christ. That's, that's what he's called us to be. But it can be a little tricky in the sense of sometimes we can just want to do something great for God and we just jump out there before we've been prepared and before we're even ready. So it is important to say, God, lead me. God, I know things are coming. I know that you have things that you want to prepare in me and you want to give me this season of life to prepare me for the next season of life. You can even be on the right path and desire to go the right direction, but you can't get out ahead of God. So here's some questions to ask yourself as you walk with God. And I mean, I, I hesitate to even bring up that whole point about being overzealous because most Christians don't have that problem. Most Christians have the problem of like, I actually have to get out there and do something. Like, I, this is too comfortable for me, so now I need to move forward. And, and, and just trust God to provide. But questions to ask yourself as you walk with God. First question is, what does my leadership and my community think about this? This is, this is one of the reasons why there's no Lone Ranger Christians. All right? We're, we're not meant to live our faith in a bubble, isolated in a vacuum. You have spiritual leadership, you have life group leaders, you have pastor, you have teachers, you have people who are investing in you and who care for you, and they have advice. You have community. If you're in a life group, if you're in a Bible study, you can actually glean wisdom from other people. There is nothing wrong with doing that. We should all be seeking that because we all need that. Now, of course, they don't know everything. They don't understand your, your situation perfectly. So it's not like you're taking their word as the Holy Spirit. You're not. But you are listening to the wisdom and gleaning some truth from that. Another question to ask yourself is, how much have I prayed about this? It's a good question to ask yourself. Before you jump too far ahead, say, hey, how, how much have I been talking to God about this? Very important that you do that. Uh, it's easy to go too slow. It's, it's also easy for some people to go too fast. The balance is when you soak it in prayer. Because hurry is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. So we don't need to be in a hurry. We need to do it at the right time. I talked about 
you know, different people throughout Scripture who walked with God. You also, I mean, if you look at the lives of some of the, the men that God has used the most, Moses. What happened to Moses before he led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt? Well, he killed a guy, and God removed him and put him in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Like, he had a lot of things to work out before God used him. Even the Apostle Paul, before he started planting churches and writing the New Testament, half the New Testament, what happened to Paul? He was in the wilderness in Judea. We had this, this like, 10-year period of time where we didn't hear anything about Paul after he was converted to Christ. Like, he was off the scene. He was not in the limelight. And God was preparing him. Maybe you're in one of those seasons right now where you want to do some great things for God. There's a lot of things that you're ready to do. You're chomping at the bit. Maybe God has you in one of those wilderness seasons where you're just learning some stuff first. And God's putting you through some trials, some hard situations, and that is going to form you and make you into a much stronger person when God gives you a bigger platform down the road. Number three, ask yourself, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this? It's a good question to ask. Maybe there's a biblical principle. Because, I mean, we're talking about, like, dealing with some, some concepts that aren't usually always black and white, but you can still go to Scripture to see biblical truth and principles that you can specifically apply to your situation. And then a fourth question, last one I have here. Do you have a clear peace from the Holy Spirit? And this is a big one that a lot of people don't really, um, they don't really put this one into practice. Somebody tells them they should do something and they just do it. They, they hear that, oh, this sounds good, this sounds like the right thing, so I'm just going to jump into this. When you know when you know. The whole, now, other people can give you advice, but you know from the Holy Spirit, he's the one, if you're a Christian, if you have received salvation by grace through faith, that only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that's ever going to happen. If you know Jesus and you know God and you have a relationship with him, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. No one else is talking to you like the Holy Spirit will talk to you. So you need to be attuned to what the Holy Spirit says. So walk with your Father, not in front of him. Let him lead. And when you walk with him, it's easier to hear his will. But that's not all. There's another key word in this phrase, this, this last part of this prayer, and lead us not into temptation. And this is the second point. Fight through temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fight through those temptations by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the key word on this one is into. As soon as you get past the over-familiarity with with this specific verse, which any of us who've been in church our whole lives, you probably just hear this verse and it's like in one ear, out the other. But stop and think about this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, it kind of sounds like you're praying, God, don't tempt me. Does it kind of sound like that at first glance? Right? I mean, who, who, who kind of hears that? You hear that a little bit? And lead me not in temptation. Okay, God, don't tempt me. I don't want to be tempted. God, don't tempt me. Problem, though. That doesn't sound totally accurate either with other verses in Scripture. Am I right? So whenever you have something in Scripture that's a little hazy, it doesn't quite sound right. Is God the one who tempts me? 
Here's another like nugget to chalk away, reliability of Scripture, helpful ideas when you're reading Scripture. We've been full of those today with our first preface and now this. If you come across something that's hard to understand in Scripture, always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. So you take the hard concept to understand here in verse 13, that doesn't quite sound right, and you use a more clear portion of Scripture to interpret that. So where else in Scripture does it talk about temptations? Does it talk about God? Where else do we see this whole idea explained? Well, James chapter 1 is a very good starting place because James 1 says that you should be thankful for temptation, which is a pretty crazy bold statement, which we don't have time to dive headlong into that. But James 1, 13 through 15 says this. It says this right here. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Let no one say when he is tempted, he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, that's as clear as day. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, on top of that, you see Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, again, wilderness before his earthly ministry, right? And so it's not a sin to be tempted. You actually, temptations make you stronger when you get through them. God brings those for very specific reasons. It's not a sin to be tempted, and God isn't the one tempting you. If I can park on the whole temptation thing for just a second, it's not a sin to have the thought, I, I, should, I should just... Take that money. That money's being used the wrong way anyway, and that person doesn't need it, and I really need it, and you're tempted to take something that's not yours. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to carry, carry that through and to take that money. Why? Going back to last week, what is sin? Sin is the opposite of the nature and the character of God. God is a provider. God is a giver. He's not a taker. So when we take something and steal something, we're, the, we're, we're just living out and manifesting the opposite of truth about God. That's sin. It's not a sin to be tempted to look lustfully at someone. It is a sin, though, to dive into that and, and, and just wrap your mind around that and, and sexually uh, focus on someone. Why? Because God made us in his image, and we're not, we're not just sexual objects. We're people with a soul. So we shouldn't sexualize people in our lives. That's, that's against the nature and the character and the way God has created life to be. It's not a sin to be tempted to look, but it is a sin to go into that and to wrap your mind around that and to do that, okay? That's the difference between being tempted and falling into temptation, which is where we're going with this, right? Because James 1.13 makes it very clear. Not a sin to be, not, not a sin to be tempted, God doesn't tempt you, so the key word here is into temptation. If it doesn't mean God don't tempt me, and God's not tempting you, it can only mean the word into has some meat on it. And God, lead me not into temptation means God, don't let me be engulfed and inflamed and ruined by this temptation. Do you see the nuance there? Do you see that difference? It's not, I don't want to be tempted, God. Temptation's automatic. It's happening no matter what. It's God, don't let me be entrapped and 
fall and stumble and cave right here. That's what falling into temptation means. We got to have these prayers, these prayers for future strength where we say, God, lead me. God, hold my hand through this. God, I mean, seriously, you might have to just pick me up and carry me right now through this. I don't want to fall into this temptation. I can feel it, God. I'm getting weak. I'm tempted here. I don't want to do this. I know it's wrong, but I kind of am leaning towards doing it. That's the prayer for future strength where you say, God, lead me not into temptation. And that is true prayer. Remember, it's proactive. It's not reactive. It's the opposite of a prevent defense. Pray for future strength. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me. I can't do this on my own. I need you. I need you. Remember that amazing verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? We talked about this a few months ago when we were in our call-out series. And we looked at that verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And we talked about that verse, and that verse does not mean that God is just going to give you things that, uh, that you can handle at all times. He'll never give you something that you can't handle. That's not what that verse is saying. What we talked about with that, and I had a quote on that verse, that verse actually is saying God will give you more than you can handle, but there's nothing that you can't handle without him. That's what we're dealing with here with the prayer for future strength. God is definitely, there's definitely going to be things in your life that are way too much for you in your own strength. But nothing is too strong when you're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. So fight through that temptation with the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's one more way that you can be proactive in your prayer life rather than reactive. And this is the third point today. It's to cling to the Son for victory. Cling to the Son. And lead us not into temptation, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is the third key word. It's deliverance. Deliverance. The evil one there, and your translation may say, deliver us from evil. Some translations say evil one. It really doesn't matter because Satan, the evil one, is the source of the evil. All right? Um, this, is where, this is where Star Wars completely misses it. Um, it's not an impersonal force out there. It's a personal force. It's a personal evil one. And we are tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay? I mean, we have our own old man, that old sin nature that dies hard, that's always going to tempt us and lead us. Like, it's going to be there. It's a battle. We also have the world, the culture around us that is, uh, that is against, against God. It's against his way. It's that world system. And you hear that in music. You see it in movies, in TV shows. It's the opposite of the path of God. And it says, this is the way. It's my way. It's, it elevates man. And then the evil one, the devil, we, we face him. We need deliverance from that. And the word deliver here, 
is the Greek word that you see up on the screen. I don't even want to try to pronounce it, but this is the Greek word, ruhome. And this Greek word actually means, to deliver means to rescue someone from a fate that they couldn't handle on their own. It's the imagery of a wounded soldier on a battlefield who's going to die there, but another soldier picks him up and carries him off to safety. That's the deliverance that we're praying to, and we have to cling to the Son for deliverance. You have to pray for strength for the future. In the Christian, in the Christian world, we have a tendency sometimes to make everything spiritual warfare or to make nothing spiritual warfare. And if we make nothing spiritual warfare, we just get crushed and, and, and slaughtered, really, by the world, the flesh, and the devil, if we're not even aware for it, if we're never praying for future strength. But then you have the Christians who literally make everything spiritual warfare. It's like, flat tire, Satan! Or bad hair day, no, Satan! Like, no, no, maybe it's just humidity, all right? So you, that's, another, that's another area where you have to find balance, okay? And ask those same questions that we went over before. But the truth of the matter is, we are in a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual there is this spiritual battle that we can't see. We do have an enemy who hates us. He hates every human being, and especially the human beings who are following Christ because we're made in the image of God. And he's at war with God. Now, Satan isn't even close to God. He's not even, the, he's not even in the same playing field, right? Like, the, the, the equal to Satan would be Michael, the archangel. Like, they're way down the ladder. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he can't touch God. He has nothing. He has nothing there. But our enemy, Satan, what does he do? He attacks us. He attacks us. And the, and the way he attacks us is different every single day. But when we have our relationship with God, we have to fight through those temptations through prayer, Right? You have to cling to our great God and our Savior. One of the phrases that we have, one of the names that is in the Bible about Satan is that he is the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. He, he accuses us in our own minds. And there's even reason to believe that, that he accuses us to others. But in the scripture, as Satan is whispering to you, you're a failure. You've, you've tripped over the same sin over and over again for 12 straight years. You don't deserve to lead. You don't deserve to say this. You, you shouldn't even go to church because you're such a hypocrite. That's the enemy whispering in your life, the accuser of the brethren. But what is Jesus? Jesus is our intercessor. He is the one who uplifts us. God chooses not to look at our sin, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, if you want to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8 is a super valuable, important text on this whole topic. Verse 31 of Romans 8, I'm going to read this, and I have verse 34 that you can see on the screen in a second. But starting at verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So as Satan is the accuser of the brethren, Jesus is right there at the right hand of God, interceding for us, saying, no, that's not true. David is a child of God. He's an heir of righteousness. You put yourself in that place. Jesus is interceding for you. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How beautiful is that? Jesus Christ is our intercessor. So as the enemy attacks us, we cling to Jesus. Cling to the Son because he is interceding for you and for me. Satan says you're trash. And Jesus at the right hand of God says, no, you're not. No, you're not. You are righteous because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. We cannot make it in this life the way God intends for us to live without prayer for future strength. We cannot be who we're called to be without bending down on our knees, being proactive rather than reactive, saying, God, lead me not into that temptation. Don't let me trip and stumble over that. Don't let me cave to that. I need your strength for deliverance. True prayer really is the result and it comes out of a relationship with God that is in God's word. Where we're focused on the gospel. This is what Jesus did for me. Jesus loves me. He died for me. He rose again. He's coming again. He has a plan for me. When you meditate and focus on the gospel by reading the word of God, that is the resource that flows out true prayer. Strong prayers for future strength happen when we cling to Christ and focus on his death and resurrection. That's where we put these three key words together. God, lead me. I don't want to get too far out ahead. I don't want to be way back here. I want you to take the lead. Lead me into deliverance not into temptation. I don't want to cave to that. I want to be delivered. I need you to pick me up and carry me on that battlefield. I'm relying on you. That's a prayer for future strength. Today, I want to close our service a little differently. And I want to invite Ben to come on up, first of all. Ben's going to have a microphone. And since True prayer flows out of a conversation with God that starts with hearing him first. And how do we hear God speak to us? We hear him speak to us by reading his word. So when you read God's word and you have him speak to you, then you respond and pray back to him.
And I want us today to close the service with some passages of Scripture that have led you out of temptation. If anyone sitting out here right now would like to come up and take the microphone and just show Ben, hey, this is a passage of Scripture that I've read this week. This is a passage of Scripture I've read this month. Going through this season of life, it's been really hard. This is the Scripture that has carried me. This is what I've looked at, and it's, and it's led me into deliverance. I've prayed this over and over again. If there's anybody like that right now, just come up. Come up right over here with Ben at the front. I think it would be very encouraging for us to hear from you some words of Scripture. Show that to Ben, and Ben, ben will take, it a, take a quick look at it. And if we can hear from our own church bodies some passages of Scripture, how powerful will this be? We need all the help we can get. We need it from each other. We need it from the Holy Spirit. And we have to pray with that mindset, that prayer of Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law, and on his laws he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and the leaf does not wither. All that he does is prosperous. Galatians five twenty two to twenty three. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Philippians 4 starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have learned and received from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Psalm 23, 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Amen, church. That's amazing. Let's stand, and we're going to proclaim to God that he has our hearts because we willingly give them. So let's sing, here's my heart. Here's my heart, Lord. Yes, Jesus, here's my heart. 